Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we go deep into mining news, hot topics, and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International and Mining International Executive, a leading global mining recruitment and headhunting agency. Hi, mining community. Welcome back to another episode of the Dig Deep, the mining podcast. And today's guest is Greg Hall, who's the CEO and Managing Director of Alligator Energy, an Australian-owned uranium and energy metals project development and exploration group uh, with clear pathways for approval and development through its multi-jurisdiction portfolio of projects in Australia and Italy. Um, Greg is a mine engineer by trade and has a wealth of experience in the uranium and nuclear fuel sector, uh, working in various senior management positions and in uh, some cases CEO a CEO capacity uh, with a few different organisations. So at the moment he's at the helm of <coughs> sorry he's at the helm of Alligator Energy. Um, he's going to give us an overview of the company, the projects they're involved in, and what the uranium se- what's happening in in the uranium sector at the moment. Um, there's been a lot of activity recently, and I'm sure there's going to be a lot more activity coming up. So um, that's welcome, Greg, to the podcast. How are you doing, Greg? Uh, excellent. Thank you, Rob. Thank you for the invitation. No worries. Appreciate your time as well. So I wondered if you can tell us a little bit about uh, your career. As I mentioned, your your expertise is in the uranium and nuclear fuel, fuel uh, sector and you've been uh, predominantly in that throughout your career so I just wanted to give our audience a flavor of your of your background your career what you've done and the various companies that you've worked in the various projects that you worked in uh, up until present day all right I'm sure thank you well look um my my career in the uranium sector started in 81 um I was a mining engineer on the Olympic Dam project during the early design and uh, and development phase I worked up to mining manager on that project. I was on it for about 11 years. So it's an interesting learning curve, not only from starting a large mine point of view, but a significant uh, uranium producer in in the state of South Australia. And so that was uh, an exciting time and I I learned a lot. Um, I then jumped into the nickel business for a while with WMC, also worked in Sweden in in iron ore and came back to uranium with uh, as mine operations manager at the Ranger Uranium Mine in the Northern Territory. And uh, we had not only the, the open pits operating around Ranger, but we were attempting to look at the Javaluka Uranium Project there, which is one of the largest undeveloped uranium projects in the world. Uh, we didn't get that going. There was opposition, uh, both from a, a government perspective, but also Indigenous perspective. So, so Rio, who took over the project, said, let's back off on it which I think was a, a smart thing to do at the time with the, with the Indigenous side in particular. Um, from, from that phase, I moved into marketing of uranium and nuclear fuel. So I worked for Rio Tinto and marketed uranium into North America and a bit of the Scandinavian markets. Um, did a lot of uh, combined deals, long-term contract in particular, which is where 80% of the uranium is sold to nuclear utilities. And then um, um, engaged in that for a period of time, was in bauxite aluminum marketing uh, before I came to my first CEO role with Toro Energy, which was a startup in uranium in 2006. In the previous time when uranium did a significant run-up in price, we had exploration properties and acquired a resource project in Western Australia and 
we we had full approval for that project gained during a politically uh, open time because some states are different in Australia and WA can change depending on the politics at the time. But we gained full approval of the project, but unfortunately it, it occurred just at the time a tsunami hit Japan in 2011. So the uranium price dropped, and as your your listeners and viewers would know, it's it's been low for about 10 years. So that was 2011. We really only started to see the uranium price move again in 2021. Uh, so during that time, I was CEO of some copper, uh, copper companies uh, and came back onto the board of Alligator Energy as a non-exec and then took over as CEO in 2018. And since then, we've been expanding the company. The company was started on uh, uranium exploration in Arnhem Land, and that's still a significant and important part of our business because uh, that area has the highest grade uranium in the country, and uh, to be able to jag another Ranger or Jabalika project there is well worth the effort to, to look. And we expanded into South Australia. We picked up the Samphire uranium project, which I'll talk a bit more about. Plus, we've got some greenfields exploration in the Cooper Basin, which is... Um, a long-standing producer of hydrocarbons in uh, gas and oil, but uh, also has the uranium-bearing strata over the top of it. So we're trying to see in that area whether there are some economic deposits. And alongside picking up these new projects, we also have some nickel cobalt in Italy, which we we picked up and did some work on when the uranium price was very low, but um, we've maintained the assets because... As you're well aware, uh, the European Union is very, very keen on finding some finding some homegrown critical minerals that it needs, and cobalt and nickel are one of them. So there's a lot of incentive to have a look there. It's uh, it's not something we're heavily focused on. Uranium is our main game, but nonetheless, we have that asset. So that's my background, uh, a brief description of the projects in, in the company. Uh, so so um, we're growing. We had... Probably three years ago, five part-time people. Now we've got about 25 people uh, with the dominance of that working on our Samphire uranium project. Uh, and I can have a, a bit more of a talk about that in detail, if you like. Yeah. So uh, the first question is, obviously, you've been in uranium for, for many years. What what has made you stay in, in the uranium sector um, for, for so long? Uh, look, it's a... It's a reasonably unique sector in that there's not a terminal market for the product. So, so most of the, the marketing is opaque, done on a long-term contract. There's reporting on different market prices, but there's no terminal market. So there is the ability not only to produce uranium effectively at a profit, but also to market smart and, and to make sure you, you get your product to market in a good way. So I like that aspect of it. Uh, the second thing is once you, once you've got a, a good experience level in the industry, um, you 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 are a bit in demand in terms of coming back to work in the industry again, and I I found that fantastic. I've enjoyed my time working in copper and iron ore and other things, but certainly I enjoy the uranium business because of the the knowledge I have in it. The other aspect is, um, in a way, we've always been big believers, those who've been in the industry a long time, that this is a, an industry that will have its day. A lot of the old reactors built in the 60s and the 70s are now getting very dated. They're the ones that have had the issues and the safety concerns. Um, but what's occurred in particularly the last 20, 15, 20 years is you've a modern nuclear industry is developing. So you've got more and more reactor designs, generation four and four plus are the big ones, plus the small modulars. 
which have larger levels of passive safety. In other words, you don't need power or, or intervention by people to make it safe. It stays safe, no matter what happens in the plant. So those sort of technologies are being developed and the efficiencies are growing and growing. So they, um, you know, the, the reactors now are running at 92 to 93% uptime, and that's an amazing efficiency rate for, for power generation. And the other main driver, of course, is the fact that, um, you know, apart from the construction, which can generate carbon, the same as any construction can, solar, wind all generates carbon during construction. Once it's operating, it's carbon-free fuel, it's carbon-free power. So the link up between nuclear and renewables and other low carbon sources now has been made immensely strongly in different parts of the world. So that's driving the industry forward and um, that's why we're seeing it take off now. Uh, before we uh, speak about some of the projects, I just wonder if you can give us a, an overview of Alligator Energy and the, uh, the management team as well. Yeah, so we've got a, a, a small board of four, including me. Um, one of our, uh, two of our other directors have uranium experience. Peter McIntyre was the managing director, CEO of Extract Resources, which discovered the giant QSAB uranium deposit in Namibia, which was then eventually on sold to CNNC, the Chinese, who are now have it up and operating. And uh, so Peter's got a background in uh, the mining industry in Australia, but also in uranium. And uh, Fiona Nichols, our director, who's ex-Rio Tinto, was on the board of Rossing in Namibia. She was also a director on ERA in Australia and has had a long history uh, in knowledge of, uh, she's got an environmental background, so she's had a long history in working in and around the uranium industry as part of the Rio Tinto group. Um, and our chairman, Paul, is a broker by background, broker and an economist. Um, who, he doesn't have specific uranium experience, but he's back, been on the board for 10 years, so he's picked up a massive amount of knowledge as well. So that's the board's experience. The management team, myself, you know my background, we recruited 18 months ago as chief operating officer for the company, Andrea Marsland-Smith. She was one of the most senior managers at Heathgate Resources here in South Australia, which has been running the Beverly Four Mile Institute Recovery Uranium Mines for 25 years. Um, uh, Andrea also has a background in uranium exploration as well as operations. So she's a very, very experienced um, operations person in that field. And um, uh, we have a, an exploration manager, um, Mike Bala, who's a geophysicist, who's got a, a background in copper and other minerals and not much in uranium, but he's picking that up quick. And a, a, a chief financial officer who's been involved in the uranium business now for nearly 10 years as well. So a solid team behind us. Andrea in particular is now recruiting and ha or has already recruited and is still recruiting a very experienced uranium team with that specialty in in-situ recovery uranium, which is the technique we're going to use at Samfire. Um, I wonder if you can just give us a quick few, uh, overview of obviously some of your projects um, mm -hmm. and some obviously ones that look very interesting as well. Well, the Samfire Uranium Project is in South Australia. It's it's about 20 kilometres south of Wyala, uh, about four hours drive away from Adelaide. Uh, so it's in the mid-north of the state. Um, there's, the, South Australia as a state is quite unique. It's approved five uranium mines in this state uh, over the last 40 years, all of which have operated. Um, so the, the Olympic Dam mine, of course, which was approved in the early 80s, has been operating for some time. The... Heathgate Resources with the Beverly Mine, the Four Mile Project and uh, Four Mile West. Those three projects have been approved and are all operating. 
And the Honeymoon Project, which had a, an earlier startup about 15 years ago, was there in care and maintenance, is now going through a restart with Boss Energy running it. Um, and so they're the five projects. So our project would be the sixth. Uh, we, the stage of this project is we have a, a, a decent sized resource, nearly 20 million pound as an initial resource. And it's, it's about 80 meters, 60 or 80 meters deep in sand. So the, the unique thing about these type of deposits is they form in compacted sands by groundwater fluids, in this case, very saline water that carries uranium off granite rocks, which have the uranium originally and, and deposit it out in the right environment in these sands. And, Basically, these sands are all sand grains, highly compacted, old river channels buried now, and the uranium solidifies out around the sand grains. The way you mine them is using what's called solution mining or in-situ recovery, where you drill a ring of holes with a central hole, you put down, a, the, the, you circulate the groundwater, add a dosing of oxidant to the groundwater and uh, draw it back up the middle. And the, the oxidant dissolves the uranium, the solid grains of uranium, like sugar in hot coffee. So it dissolves it into solution, and it comes out as a fluid. So you don't mine the rock, you don't displace the sand, you don't move the rock at all, you're just moving fluids and dissolving them. Um, this form of mining was used for, is used for copper mining in some parts of the United States, in Arizona, for example, for copper, uh, but it's used widely in uranium. Uh, Kazakhstan is the biggest producer of uranium, produce 40% of the world's uranium, they use all in situ recovery. Um, I mentioned uh, the Heathgate resources in South Australia uses heat situ recovery. And there's multiple mines in Wyoming and Texas which use in situ recovery in the past, and many of which are restarting now. So 55 to 60% of the world's uranium has come from this method, in particular when the uranium price is low. Because as you can imagine, if you don't move the rock and grind the rock and you don't have to transport it and you don't have a tailings dam or anything, it's much cheaper capital. So... Our project to do a startup is in our scoping study that we published this year. It's about 130 million Australian dollars for capital and an operating cost of about 30 US dollars a pound. Now, with the current spot price hitting the high 50s, um, it's getting close to being startup economic. So um, that project is well advanced. We, we're expanding the raw resource and drilling as we speak. We'll be doing another resource update another scoping study update because we're going to actually increase the size of the production plant. Um, and then early next year, we're conducting what we call a field recovery trial. Um, so in, in this situation with many of these deposits, the chemistry can be a little bit unique in each place. So while you do, you bring out cores of the sand and you do lots of bench scale testing, the best test is do three or two trial rings, circulate the fluids, add oxidant through a small pilot plant, in this case, two containers is enough for the pilot plant, and trial and, and bring the uranium out of solution. So we're fabricating that pilot plant now and we'll have it on the ground early next year, subject to uh, approvals to make to let it operate. And then we'll be running that um, field recovery trial. So the output of that trial will give us the technical, environmental, economic factors we need to go into a feasibility, which is the intent for the second half of 24. So that's the stage the project's at. It's um, it's now at sort of that mid-development stage um, leading on to, let's say, production, if all goes right, with an approval process, uh, maybe 2027. And how big do you think that sapphire, the Sapphire project can actually get get to? Well, the interesting, I, I get this asked this question a lot by, by um, investors and fund managers in particular say, well, it's really pretty small. So, uh, and 
in-situ recovery project will start probably about 1.2 million pounds a year. Um, and uranium still measured in pounds and priced in pounds and things. Um, so 1.2 million pounds a year. So Beverly, for example, started at 1.2 million pounds a year. It's now up to four and a half million pounds a year. Because in general, when you find uh, the right sands and uranium de deposition characteristics where they form, you generally find more. So in our case, and uh, we've got seven to eight kilometres of extension of these buried paleo channels. We're only looking at about 10 to 15% of this resource at the moment. So we're going to be expanding our footprint of exploration uh, very soon to start to, to expand. So I think we will, when you construct these plants, um, 1.2 million pound a year on a modular basis, and you leave enough room to build another 1.2 million pound module. So you can quickly move up to over 2 million pounds a year. As an example, the, the um, Boss Energy's Honeymoon project was running, uh, designed about 1.5 million pound previously. They're restarting it up to it at that point, and then they'll be expanding it to over 2 million pound. Um, Projects in Wyoming, like Peninsula's project, has, has sized around 1.5 million pound. Um, UR Energy's project in Wyoming is sized about 1.2 to 1.5 million pound. So it's an ideal starter size. You can make good, profitable project out of a, a, that size ISR project, but it's then easy to expand it because you're already making cash. So that's the beauty of the institute recovery. It suits um, both the skill sets of the team we have uh, that we've pulled together, but also uh, of the size company we are, we'll be able to fund and get this project going ourselves. Yeah. Um, and with some of the other projects, is there any other highlights that you want to uh, share with us? Well, two two key things. Well, I mentioned Alligator Rivers region. Uh, we're up there now on a new project area called Narbalek North. This is the area north of the old Narbalek mine and some of your, your uh, let's say, more mature viewers might remember that in the 80s, there was a small mine mined in the Arnhem land called Narbalek and uh, and produce some high-grade uranium. So we're looking to the north of that. We've got a drilling program to look at the underlying geology, and we're now defining something like 20 targets we want to drill. Um, we've found uranium in this area before to the south of where we are now. Um, look, you can find we've got a small resource at Caramel, which is 0.3% at about 7 million pounds. We have a lot of intersections of more than a percent uranium in different areas, but we just haven't pulled together that economic size project yet. So we're doing uh, work up there right through the dry season up to about October to really look at this new area. And we're very hopeful because um, previously up there, we had to drill through a lot of barren sandstone where this area doesn't have uh, that sandstone overlying. So that's important. We'll, we'll have good geological information come out, but also um, have put aside some funds for targeting some deep holes to see see what we can hit. Um, and our neighbours to the south of us, DevEx, have been doing just that and finding some good intersections uranium. So so we're we're uh, keen to, to get into that as well. The other project of interest in uranium is the, the Big Lake uranium in the Cooper Basin. So this is an area that just hasn't been explored much for uranium. There's there's some gamma spikes in the oil and gas wells up high. Of course, they go very deep to two kilometres. We're looking in the top 300 metres. The interesting thing is the biggest in situ recovery uranium fields in the world, that is Kazakhstan, is oil and gas basin. Wyoming is a gas and coal basin. Texas is an oil and gas basin. In situ uranium fields are often interrelated with oil and gas basins because the hydrocarbon leakage, in particular from gas, is a reductant that helps the uranium in solution drop out as a solid. So you quite often get them intermingled in some manner. 
so the, what we're looking there is potentially a new uranium field. So if we find a trap where there's uranium trapped, that means there's a chance for more. And that's why we're having a decent look. And so we're, we've got a good Indigenous agreement in place. We've had our first visits up there and we'll be on the ground later this year for our first drill, which is is very exciting. We're looking forward to that. Yeah. Um, I wonder if you can give us a, an overview of the uranium market at the moment. Um, obviously, I see the, the uh, there's a strong spot price is, uh, is picking up. Um, I know from last year it was around the, the, the mid 30s and now it's uh, approaching sort of 60 cents at the moment. Um, what are the sort of uh, the big term long drivers of uranium demand? Well, the interesting thing about how this market has restarted now, there was a few little blips in 2016, a bit in 2018 where people got interested. But what really changed and started to move, particularly uranium equities in December 20, December 2020, was when the Biden administration came in, the Democrats, as an administration, made a full commitment to fully support and underpin nuclear power. Now, that's the first time the Democrat government has done that. Republicans always support nuclear power, but the Democrats never have. Now, that changed totally the dynamics and also the impetus and interest within nuclear power in the US straight away, within a month. And so all the uranium equities started to move even before the uranium price moved. So the uranium price was, you're right, in 2020, early 21, was sitting around that $30 a pound US. It really only started to move in about April, May. And uh, and then, of course, the, the equities continued. So we had a bit of a run-up in the price. The equities had a bit of a run-up. As always happens when everyone gets excited, you've got an overshoot. And then there's a bit of settling down during 22. And then the market starts to look at, okay, who are the lead players? Who are the ones that are restarting operations which have been on care and maintenance? And those are the operations, uh, you know, our compatriot operations like Boss Energy, like UR Energy, like Peninsula. So they're restarting operations. Cameco, of course, has restarted Cigar Lake, you know, one of the highest grade mines in the world. And then what you're seeing now is companies like ours who have new projects which were discovered 15 years ago and never developed. We're now advancing. You've got a few in Africa. You have um, uh, ourselves in Australia. And, and so the good thing about it is that the market's been supportive in that the price, while it's moved up and then dropped down a bit, has now come back up. Um, as, as we were talking about earlier, the, the spot price in the US on Wednesday hit um, 59.75. There were three sales, spot sales of 59.75 US a pound. So it's knocking on the door of 60. And most of the restart projects want to make sure they've got that sort of high 50, $60 plus price. We use $65 price in our scoping study, and, and that shows a very profitable operation. So the spot price is showing that's uh, that that is there but of course the big driver is the long-term contracting so nuclear utilities tend to do a series of layered contracts so they'll do a, a contract for four or five years here with someone another contract with someone and sort of overlap them to fully cover their requirements and stagger over time so um the the con long-term contracting really started picking up about 18 months ago in in 2022 there was a i think 122 million pound contracted under long-term contracts by August this year, this year in 23, it was already a £120 million contract. So the, the long-term contracting by utilities has picked up dramatically. That's the key driver of the health of the industry because those contracts, they might be a, a portion of a fixed price or a portion of market price with a floor and ceiling, 
but nonetheless, they underpin the future productions. So um, as suppliers, uh, I've heard this from many suppliers publicly saying, look, we need long-term supportive pricing in contracts that will make sure that we can produce profitably for a period of time. People are not going to produce to feed just into the spot market. That's that's not comfortable and it's not where you really want to take your shareholders. You really want to make sure you've got an underpinning of support. So most companies will do a good portion of long-term contracting between 60 and 80% uh, to make sure they underpin their production. And the beauty is that um, we're about to head into a very active period. The, the World Nuclear Association, which is London-based, is about to have its uh, uh, annual seminar, annual meeting, and that's usually the kickoff point for the second half of the, the year, post the, the holiday period in the Northern Hemisphere, when a lot of uh, new long-term contracts get set. So a lot of utilities will come out with requests for proposals. There's a lot of off-market mm-hmm. discussions, and we'll see a big ramp up, I, I believe, in, in long-term contracts being formed. So there's um, a good impetus in the spot price, and, and of course the funds do a lot of buying there, both the Yellowcake Fund, the Sprott Fund and others. There's a good impetus in um, the long-term contracting. And uh, with the geopolitical situation, the, the, the change in, in uh, decisions, if you like, to purchase Russian uranium in particular, um, then that's swinging a lot of utility buyers back to Western-produced uranium, which, of course, is uh, uh, Namibia, certain other countries in Africa, uh, Canada, the US, Australia dominantly. So it's a great time to be at a mid-development stage of a new project in in South Australia. Yeah, uh, I do apologise. I did say uh, the spot price was approaching sixty cents. What I meant was sixty dollars. Okay. Uh, I wish it was sixty cents. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I wonder if you can speak about some of the, the su- uh, supply and demand issues. Um, with obviously, I suppose uh, in the height of. Um, the uranium market probably back in 2011. Then obviously a lot of um, mines went into care and maintenance. What, yes. what are what? And obviously now we're waiting to get to a, a particular figure where it will restart. Some of these mines will restart, and obviously projects come online. But in that case, what are the figures around the supply and demand um, issues with? this whole hesitation with mining companies looking to restart mines and their mines coming online as well? Well, look, it's a, I, I think we're becoming a little more sensible in the approach. Um, typically, around that time, 2010 11, um, you had a, a, a fuel burn-up each year in reactors around the world, which is about 180, 170, 180 million pounds. And immediately following Fukushima, of course, uh, you had um, the Japanese over a period of 13 months as their reactors shut down for normal maintenance, they then had to do a lot of other work. So that took a significant number of reactors, uh, some 30 or 40 reactors offline. You had the, the Germans deciding to shut down their reactors. Um, and you also had some a, a few small older ones that, that were shut down. So you had a drop in the number of reactors that used to operate. But you still had continuous produ- uh, construction. There was three to four to five reactors under construction every year, dominantly in China and India, but spread around about 15 countries, actually. And they kept going through that period of the you know, 2010s onwards. So where we're ended up now is, is the, the burn-up of uranium is still around 180 million pounds a year. But 
the production got down to something like 120. So the excess being burning reactors was coming from uh, Russian stocks, uh, from other stockpiles, a little bit of selling by the Japanese, being generally those stocks were gradually being depleted. But what happened in 2020-21 was when the Sprott Fund in particular and the Yellow Cake Fund before it came in, they started buying up that excess uranium stock. So in other words, they speeded up the drop in the secondary supply. So that's meant that we were already in a, a tightening market where nuclear utilities knew, well, they had to go out and get new contracts to help mine start up. So Cameco only started Cigar Lake or restarted Cigar Lake when it had enough contracts at the right price to do so. Um, the ones that are starting up in the States now, uh, Encore, uh, Uranium Energy Fuels uh, and uh, UR Energy, they are starting because they've got contracts in place. So you're now seeing a disciplined approach by, by supply of uranium where we will start production when there's supportive prices to make sure we're making a return for our shareholders. So that supply discipline has been excellent. The other aspect of it, though, we can't forget is it does take a fair time and a fair effort to start a uranium mine or even restart. If you don't have full approvals, you need to obtain full approvals. In some cases, if um, uh, the... the um, processes change or there's a tightening of, of requirements, then you have to go through the process again. So so it is still a significant process to, to get an approval for uranium mine. Even in South Australia, that have approved five uranium mines. We anticipate that our mining lease approval will take something like about three years, and that's why we're initiating it now. So um, the combination of disciplined supply, the requirement to get approvals in place and new permits uh, meant as the supplies come on slowly. But that's a good thing. It's It means that you're going to get a genuine underpinning of an industry, which is going to help the utilities in the long run, rather than have fly-by-night supply. Um, so it's a, it's an interesting market at the moment. You're seeing that um, that gain in price translating through to contracts, translating through to future production, which is exactly what the industry needs. Um, I know you're a big fan of the, the small modular reactors, um, and Rolls-Royce uh, over here are a big uh, name in them. Um, with the SM, uh, SMRs being a big part of nuclear energy of the of the future, do you see that happening? Uh, certainly, it certainly will. Um, the beauty of small modular reactors, and these generally are anywhere like about 300 megawatts down to sort of 50, 60 megawatts. Um, the beauty of these is in most countries in the world, they fit well in the grid. Uh, as an example, um, a 1 to 1.5 gigawatt reactor, you've got to have a lot of population around that and you've got to have a lot of power usage near it. Otherwise, you've got a lot of transmission cost. Um, but many countries in the world have that and they certainly have the power draw and the power usage. But a country like Australia, for example, um, many of our uh, coal-fired power stations were three boilers at 250 megawatt each, for example. And that's perfect for that SMR size. So... So it, it's deemed to be fitting into the grids better. The second thing is many of these new designs of SMRs are load following or they have a better capacity for load following. So you can hook them up with wind and solar generation. And as the, the renewable energy lifts, you can drop down the, the output of the small modular and then vice versa, lift the small modular at nighttime, et cetera. So, so that's another beauty of the, the small modules. And the other case uh, around them is they are, small enough to be transportable so they can be fabricated in a factory, in a plant, 
So you've got better quality control. You fabricate one, two, three, four, and you get uh, more efficiencies of construction. So that's a, a great outcome. And they're modular, which means, for example, one of the early uh, movers, Newscale, um, have approval to build uh, a plant in Idaho, and they're going to do six modules. So the, the Newscale SMR is about 77 megawatt, and they'll do six of them in a row. So um, Rolls-Royce has is, is, is got a similar thing for the future. They can do two together. Uh, and Terra Power, which are looking at Wyoming for a, a reactor, uh, are similar. And Excel is the other one in Toronto that's well advanced with uh, doing designs mm -hmm. and, and construction in Ontario. So they they will help really blend nuclear into the grids of the, of the world in a much better way, I believe. And so that's that's that can't be ignored. It becomes very useful. The other aspect is, of course, it's going to create uranium demand. Um, they're very efficient. They're small. So that demand curve will, will start slowly and then pick up through the 2030s and 40s. It's not going to have a massive impact on demand straight away, but that's fine because the current reactors and the future buying by the utilities is having a massive impact on demand already. So uh, it's, a, it's an exciting time to be in the industry. It, it's fantastic to see the new technologies coming out. And look, I, I, if you if you have your viewers look at the World Nuclear Association website, they've got some good information there on on small modular reactors, as does the NEA. Um, and you can see how many different designs are being developed, and and the early movers are really starting to make a mark. I do ask our viewers to share these podcasts with people, um, not just in the mining industry, but outside of the mining industry. Sure. And if they shared this podcast with people that don't really know anything about mining and especially uranium straight away they may think look uranium is bad for whatever reason there's been obviously disasters in the past what would you say to them about the uranium industry and why it is needed and why it's not as bad as people may be thinking or their interpretation or the perception of the, the, the uranium industry all right. Well, very quickly, there's a there's a few key points that the general public thinks. And, I, of course, I've been in the industry for 40 years or more. I've talked to the public a lot about this. Uh, first of all is the radiation aspect. So, first, in uranium mining, when uranium is in the ground, it's, real, it's very low levels of radioactivity. It's not high. Um, we talk to people all the time about this. In a mine site, you can handle the core, you can handle the rock, you can do this. And it's basically simple hygiene. You can't make yourself radioactive. What you have is you have some dirt on your hands, which might be partially radioactive. So you just wash your hands. And, and so the key thing about the safety for the public is you've got to make sure your employees are safe. So over many, many years of, of um, clinical work and, and that's gone on around uh, measurements of radiation and the impacts on people, we've shown that we know where that sort of level is, that if you work at this level for 40 years of your life, then you could get an impact on your risk of cancer. You don't die, you just get a slight increase in risk of cancer. So the, the levels that our employees are allowed to work at are set five times less than that. And then we also have a requirement to do it as low as reasonably achievable. So they're generally less than that again. So the levels of uranium mining that, that workers are exposed to, you're, you're, you can work in the industry 40 years and have no risk to impact on, on your health. So then you take radiation changes with distance away from it. So when you're in the general public, you're really getting very little impact. In fact, um, the most of the radiation the public's exposed to, and they're exposed to maybe one or two millisieverts a year, whereas a worker might be exposed to two to three or four. Um, 
most of their radiation comes from the sun, from cosmic radiation, from the earth itself, from potassium and other minerals, as well as uranium, and also from medical imaging, right, from from medical uh, isotopes. So um, radiation is not harmful at low levels, and and there will be some that will dispute that. Uh, Essentially, the earth has been bathed in radiation ever since it was formed um, four and a half billion years ago. In fact, the radiation levels are much higher, and they've been depleting over time. So the radiation aspect of it does frighten people, but it's very easily to be managed, very easy to measure, and very easy to understand the impacts over time. Then the other key thing that people worry about is the spent nuclear fuel. So when you take uranium, you enrich it, you increase the level of radioactivity somewhat, but not still not massive. Once it's been in a reactor for three years, you have a lot of different isotopes, which all are radioactive in many, in many ways, and they have different half-lives that take time to decay. Now, the, the classic line that we hear all the time is, oh, this stuff's going to last for a quarter of a million years or more. Well, that's not quite correct. That's the time it'll take for all the radiation to decay. But the time it takes for the, the most of the isotopes to decay back to the levels that they would generally form in the Earth anyway is about between 100 and 1,000 years. So immediately that changes the face of what you're talking about because we've all seen things that have lasted 1,000 years. But also... The, the 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 time that they are dangerous is even shorter than that. So it, it, it's it's not uh, as severe as people think in terms of the, the waste deposition. It's also very easy to contain. So spent nuclear fuel rods, the first instance they're put in pools where they're cooled down, and that's just heat cool rather than anything else. Then they're put into cement concrete cask storage. And every reactor location around the world has them. You can stand next to them for 40 years of your life and hardly can measure a dose of radiation. It is very easy to contain. And, of course, because of the concern around the world, they're designed to withstand plane crashes and all those things. And and so you you can manage and handle the safety quite easily. They're the two key things that people worry about most, the the uranium radiation and then the spent fuel. People used to worry a lot more in the 70s and a bit of the 80s around uh, nuclear proliferation. And, and gradually people have understood that, look, there's been a very successful separation of civilian nuclear power with um, weapons nuclear, uh, weapons grade uranium. Um, the other key thing is that you can extract uranium from seawater. You can extract it from a very low-grade deposit. So if, if a country really desperately wants to get uranium to make a weapon out of it, they'll be able to do it. You do not have to go into the civilian nuclear sphere of uranium to get it. You can just get it out of anywhere because it, it doesn't have to be economic. They're just going to do it. So people have accepted more and more that there is a, a, a big, big difference between the enrichment level for weapons compared to civilian, and there's also a wide separation of how those two industries work. So that's sort of what I would say. Those three key areas are what people worry about, and, uh, and, and once you've been in the industry a fair time, you, you actually understand the more detail about it. Yeah. Um... I've got a couple more questions. Um, if you sort of had, I suppose, 60 seconds to explain why people should um, have alligator energy on their watch list if they were looking to invest, uh, what would you uh, say to them? All right. So a key project, Samfi project, is an in-situ recovery project, which means it's a lower capital cost. It's got a relatively cheap uh, operating cost as well. 
Uh, it's at a mid-stage development, so we actually have a lot of news flow about to come up. Another resource upgrade, a scoping study upgrade, the field recovery trial early next year leading to a feasibility study. So that will be the last of the, the technical environmental questions we need to answer to get into that, that project. We've already been um, going through the approval for a retention lease, um, a smaller lease to get the field trial going, and that information is feeding into now our mining lease approval. So we've initiated that process. So we are, um, we are, let's say, a mid-stage development project which has got room to move both in our uh, growth path for the resource but also our growth path, path for the market cap of the company. Uh, we're well-funded. We raised good funds in late 21, early 22 to take these projects forward. And uh, we're very keen to advance because the, even at our early stage, we've had 25 meetings with uh, nuclear utilities who are very keen to do even conditional term offtake contracts for future production. So we are we're, we're set to do initial contracts when we wish to, and the likely timing will be post our field trial and into feasibility. So we're getting close to that stage of of uh, the, the the latter uh, pre-development work. So that's that's exciting for us as well. We love that. Yeah. And lastly, just wonder if there's anything else that you want to add, whether it's on the company or even within the the uranium space. Well, we've covered a lot of ground. Uh, I, I think that um, the, the good part about this is is we've been dominantly in our industry looking at existing projects around the world. Um, even Samphire discovered 15 to 16 years ago is now being developed. You've got Cigar Lake discovered in the 70s, essentially being developed, uh, now coming back in production. You've got the Honeymoon Project discovered in the 70s. Uh, many of the projects that we're looking at and working on were discovered in the 70s and 80s. There's less pure greenfields exploration. And what I'm excited about is the opportunity we have in in, uh, in alligator energy to do some. So we're looking at alligator rivers for, for new projects. We're looking at big lake uranium for new projects because you can have a lot of uranium which might be more costly and might will take time before it's mined or might not be mined at all. But if you jag a new project with the right grade, the right setting, the right mining method, like extraction method, then you've got a new project faster than some others. Not only that, a discovery always gives you a, a, a big value boost in terms of your shareholders' funds. So um, I think that's where the industry should move and continue to move because there will be new discoveries. And there's been quite a few in Canada. And I, I think it's time for the rest of the world to jump on that. Yeah, certainly. Greg, really appreciate your time. Thank you for uh, sharing your story and telling us about alligator energy and especially obviously informing and educating us around the uranium industry. Um, and like I said, I like I like our audience to share share this episode uh, with people within our industry, but also people outside our industry, because I think uranium is going to be coming more into the market. It's going to be coming more into the news and it's good to have um an expert like yourself just i suppose giving our audience and people like i said outside the mining industry a better understanding of what uranium is and 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 like with anything there's also there is risk but this is very it is not that risk that everyone thinks uranium is so i appreciate you in sharing your uh sharing your knowledge and wisdom with our audience um if our if our audience do uh, want any more information? If they want to ask you any questions, how can they go about doing that? Um, is there mm -hmm. certain social media channels that you're on that people can follow? Yeah, story? we're on we're on uh, on Twitter, 
or XNOW plus LinkedIn. Uh, we also have a community or an info line email uh, on our website, alligatorenergy.com.au. So happy to get uh, queries there um, or, or through our um, office number, which has a recording device. So even if you're ringing from the UK at night, we can get a recording, leave your name and number or email, and I can respond. So there's quite a few ways to contact us. Yes, and we'll include these in the, the show notes accompanying this podcast. And if you're watching on the YouTube channel, they'll be below as well. So really appreciate your time, Greg. All the best for the year and uh, going into 2024. Um, and perhaps you can come on the podcast uh, next year and give us an update. We'd enjoy that. Thank you very much for your yeah, time, Rob. No worries. Uh, thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Obviously, like I said, uranium is going to be an important um, energy or a fuel source for uh, the, for the world, um, and it's only going to be increasing. So appreciate your continued support. Please share this episode uh, with others within our mining industry, but also obviously people outside of the mining industry um, as well. So it's important to educate not those within our industry, but outside as well. So until next time, happy mining. Thank you for listening. Remember to reach out to Rob via the show notes and be sure to subscribe and leave a review. Until next time, happy mining, helping each other to improve the mining industry.